everybody. Welcome to the Make Better Photos and Videos podcast. I'm Ross. And I am Gordon. And do we know what episode this is? Could be 119. Could be 119. Could be 120. I'm not sure either. You know what? <laughs> we'll know when we post it. We will. Because that's when the numbers show up. <laughs> hey guys, hope everybody is doing well. In this episode, Gordon and I decided that we're going to talk about tips for better landscape photography. Does that sound like a good idea? It's as good as any other others that we've had so far. <laughs> true enough. True enough. So we know that lots of folks love to make them landscape photos. But you may have found from time to time that you look at your work or you look at the work of others and go, um, yeah, I'm not really getting it. So, Gordon, when we think about landscape photography, or if I just say to you, hey, Gord, let's go out and photograph some landscapes. What's one of the first things you think about? Uh, that would be location. Location. Oh, you mean finding the right place is really important. It's very important for what you might want to shoot. Otherwise, you pick a location and you find a way to shoot it. Right. Um, as we've said, interesting photos are often made in interesting locations. Correct. And non-interesting location is going to be a little bit more work. Yes. Fortunately, we don't have to travel thousands of miles because there's always something interesting, you know, within an hour's drive of typically where most folks live. Yes. We just have to see it. Yes. First. So, Gordon, if you if we we're going to go out and do some landscape photography, let's start with some of the gear that you might be inclined to throw in your voluminous backpack. <laughs> Gordon thinks he's on a death march when we go out photographing. He brings everything. It's not strictly true, but no, okay. it comes close. A little bit? Maybe a little bit. A little bit. I can't but say that I'm any better. <laughs> But my gear doesn't weigh as much as yours does. So That's true. And you weigh less than I do too. So there's uh, probably some thing there, but I don't know what that. it is. So what do you bring? Um, one or two camera bodies. Okay. I bring <clears throat> what I call a standard lens. Okay. Which in my case... Um, is the equivalent of a 28 to 200. Okay. Um, I carry a wide angle lens. And I carry a medium telephoto, maybe the equivalent of a 40 to 300. Okay. That's All right, so much it. a three lens kit works three for lens you? Three lens kit. Okay. All right, I, I would say that I... Um, I probably carry a little bit less, but I like the idea of what you're talking about. I tend to carry a wide angle, either a prime, but more often, you know, either a 14 to 24 or 16 to 35. That's full frame equivalent. The, the focal mm -hmm. lengths really don't mm -hmm. matter. Think about angle of view. Um, and then I will go for something like a 70 to 200. And in my third lens is invariably a macro um, or a lens that is capable of close-up photography because sometimes I'll find 
that when we are out hunting for a nice landscape, there's an opportunity for some close-up work. Sure. So, okay, we're not not so dissimilar. <clears throat> now, what else do you take besides the camera? Um, always a tripod. Always a tripod. Fair enough. Yep. Carry a gray card. Um, variable usage for yep. changing light conditions. Um, now, the gray card is not just for exposure because the camera's got a good meter. Where do you also use the gray card? Uh, white balance, if you tend to use a white balance for, mm-hmm. for anything. Um, fighting middle gray if I'm going to be shooting black and white, which I do sometimes. Um, I pretty much always carry a cable release. And well, sure, you've got a tripod, that makes sense. Sure. And like a conversation from last week or week before, uh, I carry a set of filters with me, uh, ND filters and a polarizing filter. Well, in that case, we're pretty much the same. But the only thing that I'm going to throw in uh, my bag, uh, wait, you're going to be surprised at this. I'll have a flash. No, no surprise there. Yeah, because I add the flash before I add the lens. And that means, you know, transmitter, receiver, um, particularly because in landscape, we want to have multiple depth areas, a foreground, a midground, and a background. And sometimes we have to make exposure decisions favoring the midground and background that may cause the foreground to drop darker than I might like. Mm-hmm. And I like the ability to put a kiss of light in some foreground elements in order to you know, create a sense of dimension in the photograph. The other tool that I found pretty useful, um, given my love of lying on the ground, is the platypod. Because I can set that fairly low, I could strap it to a fence post. Um, I've got a decent ball head on it. It's a nice way to get low, and then your camera, and as well as my camera, we can trigger them remotely, uh, also through our phones, mm-hmm. and get remote view through the phones. Right. So you don't necessarily have to be lying on the ground, and that's kind of handy, because I think one of the things that you wanted to talk about was point of view. Yes. So why don't we talk about point of view? Okay. Point of view. The way you're standing, the way you are, or maybe the location from which you are looking at the image. And chances are good that whatever you're seeing the first time around is not the last image you're going to see. So okay. If you think it looks good from here, the chances are good if you sit down or stand up or get higher or move left or move right, that view is going to change quite dramatically Mm -hmm. and can completely alter your vision of what that image is going to be like. I think, well, you know I'm going to agree with that because I'm an advocate of what I call the two-step. Take two yes. full steps left, take two full steps right from wherever you thought you set up, because it's going to give you a different perspective. But you also highlighted two other directions, and that's to get low yep, or to get higher. Yep. And now sometimes getting higher can be 
challenging, mm-hmm. but it may not be quite as hard as some people think. Um, so that just changing your point of view and how you see the scene will change maybe how you interpret it or the story that you want to tell. Right. Now, in addition to changing your point of view, do you also maybe change the lenses or field of view, angle of view, as you change positions? Is that why you like zoom lenses? Well, it uh, allows me to carry more lenses in less. And so from that point of view, yes, I think it, it is. And uh, I believe the quality of the zoom lenses now is not really giving away a lot to the prime lenses. I would say that that's true. I mean, we'll, we'll always see arguments that primes are always better than zooms. And technically that may be true, but you might also ask the question, but can I see it? Well, I was just going to say that because you can't. No, you can't. You really can't. So, okay, that that's pretty fair. So we can get out in the field. Um, we're going to use the tripod both for stability and because it's easier, frankly. You're not, you know, bent over in weird positions trying to shoot the, the angle that you want for the shot. You can put the camera on the tripod or the platypod or whatever and, and get there. I mean, we have a friend who takes a beanbag. Right. And he, he likes that as a, as a methodology to hold the camera. There's not necessarily a right way, but trying to do everything handheld can get a little tiring. I, I fully agree. Um, I can't actually make a good argument for not using a tripod. And uh, if you do use a tripod, you, you're no longer under the constraints of, I can't hold the camera steady anymore, I can't wait for the wind to die down, the light's coming over but my hand's getting tired. You're, you're freed of all those things. Mm-hmm. You can set it up, uh, you can attach the cable release and have a pop. And I think that your your story, your analysis here is so very telling because I hear from people say, well, I don't want to carry the tripod, so it's so constraining. But your perspective is that it's actually very freeing. It is freeing. And I think that makes a lot of sense because if we're photographing landscapes, um, are they going to get up and walk away? I hope not. <laughs> well, if they do, then perhaps we have a different problem. We have right? a different problem altogether. Right. But in general, that makes a lot of sense. It also gives the opportunity, when you find the field of view that you really like, if you want to let wait and let the light change, you can. Mm-hmm. And you don't get exhausted doing that. Right. Um, in my case, I find it handy because then I can be away from the camera and I could actually be using that wireless flash right. in a longer exposure, for example, to throw little pops here and there. Yep. Now let's talk a little bit about long exposures because that's a not an uncommon tool when we're photographing landscapes. So why would we do that? Uh, in... And landscape particularly, I think it does does do things. It changes the nature of the skyscape because instead of having a static skyscape, you can be showing the implied 
wind force, wind direction, clouds, clouds are now scudding, not just staying still. And you may want to smooth out other areas to give it a more artistic look or a feel. Like water? Like uh, water. Or yep. uh, just as an example, we were out on a trip um, day before yesterday, I think. And uh, we got to the Peterborough Locks. There was a wind, not a big wind, but there was a wind. And the water in the lock was rough. And the person I was with chose to smoothen the water out and get the clouds non-static. And I think he achieved that very well. I think he got something like a two-minute exposure or one-minute exposure. And he got a very good result. Yeah, and that's but he couldn't have done that if he has hand holding it. No, he surely couldn't. And so the tripod also gives you some creative flexibility you're never going to have if you're just trying to shoot handheld. I so, think so. Yeah. So I think that makes a lot of sense. Now, you mentioned that he got a very long exposure. I presume this was during daytime. Yes. So how did he do that? I mean, we did talk about these last episode, right. but <clears throat> it pays to sure. repeat. Uh, he had, um, I don't know what numbers they were exactly, but it was not a 10, but maybe somewhere between a 7 and a 10, somewhere like that. That uh, for I think he used maybe two filters held in a holder in front of his lens. Mm-hmm. And uh, that gave him enough reduction in light transmission that he could go for the long exposure right. without blowing out the rest of the image. Right. So neutral density filters? Two. Two of them. Okay. And so that's a good point, that you can stack filters if you want multiple effects. You know, one of the things that I will often do is use a, a, a heavy neutral density filter and then pull it, put a polarizer in front of right. it, which cuts a little bit more light, but also gives me control over reflections and do the darken the blue sky, make the colors pop thing. And I don't know whether he did this or not, but uh, he may have used a graduated filter combined with those so that he was reducing the sky to a greater extent right. than he was just the water. Yeah, and that those graduated neutral densities... In that case where your sky is significantly brighter than your foreground and midground, um, they go a long way to helping you preserve things. And they're the kind of thing that you really want to use in camera because while we can use filters and post-processing, as we talked about, nothing like getting it right in camera. Sure. Uh, you know, preserving your dynamic range, making sure you don't clip your shadows or your highlights. One of the other things that I like particularly about using the slower shutter speeds is, uh, I'm Canadian, I've seen trees. Yep. Lots of them. And I know what a tree looks like and I know what the leaves look like. But my preference, and this is just me, is I like to get a sense of time passing. Okay. So not only can we get the, scu- the clouds scudding if there are clouds, smooth the water if there is water, but I can also get a very nice, almost oil painterly effect if there's a decent breeze 
with deciduous trees, right? Because the leaves move, right? The tree probably doesn't, and you get this really nice kind of swirling effect in the leaves. Now, there are going to be folks who say, well, it's a horrible photograph because the leaves aren't tack sharp, but that wasn't my intent. Sure. My goal was, in fact, to, to capture the sense of motion and time passing. You know, I think I think of you know cinematography school. And one of the things that they always do, and we see it a lot in movies. You know, the clouds moving rapidly through the sky to to create the sense in the viewer of the passage of time. You know, time passes mm-hmm. and sure does. rip the sky. You know, you know at ten times the speed of normal movement. That's a very common cinematography cinematography tool. But we could also do it in still photographs. So that's that's pretty cool. I had not thought of that particular usage, but I know I'm going to be. Well, we'll <laughs> give it a shot, right? We find out, does this do something different for me? Now, when we photograph these landscapes and we have all these, you know, the options of different lenses, different fields of view, um, when we think about composition, uh, where do you think the horizon should go? I know where it goes most of the time, but where ideally would you want to put the horizon? To quote a famous photographer, it depends. <laughs> uh, depends what you're trying to show. If ah. your main interest is in the sky, then using a rule of thirds at the lower one-third, junctional lower one-third and the upper two-thirds is where you would probably want to place your horizon. Mm -hmm. If your points of interest were more land-based, then you would shift that up so that you get a minimum amount of sky and more land to emphasize your point. Yeah, I think that's the really key thing. Um, you know, we hear about the rule of thirds and invariably you hear that phrase and then someone says, well, the purpose of rules is to break them. But first you need to understand why they are useful. And it's all about focusing attention on your desired subject. A photograph can only have one subject. Mm-hmm. It can have lots of supporting content, but it's only got one subject. So using compositional tools, whether we're, focus, focus, or whether we're photographing in what we would call the landscape orientation or the portrait orientation, the composition enters into things a lot. You know, some of the other things that we might be inclined to think about is what's on the sides? Is it just open? Can the eye fall right out of the frame very easily? Or do we have a tree or something that creates a barrier that's going to cause the eye to stay in the frame? How does the eye move through the frame? One of the joys of landscape photography is that the landscape isn't walking away on you. Right. And so now you can spend some time trying different compositions and trying different focal lengths and different angles of view. Uh, I do, you know, look, we've both seen, we've gone out places and people shoot 100 frames without moving anything. That's kind of a waste, but that's their choice. But we've also seen an awful lot of landscapes where the horizon is 
dead center. Yep. And that has a cha- is a real challenge for viewers because they don't know where to look. Right. Am I looking at the sky? Am I looking at the foreground? Where does the photographer want me to look? Um, the average viewer is, and I don't mean this in a disrespectful sense, they've got a shorter attention span. Mm-hmm. You know, if they don't see something pretty quick, they're going to move on. And certainly that modality has been inculcated through, you know, social media and the 3,000 selfies a day type of stuff on Instagram and, and Facebook and places like that. But the more that we work as creatives on our compositional choices, the better off we're going to be in terms of our outcomes. Would you agree? Mm-hmm. Yes, I would. Do you ever photograph landscapes in the vertical orientation? Very seldom. Okay. And that's something else that you can think about based on your subject. So if my subject is a mountain range. I've got one mountain. I don't have the range. Okay, fair (laughs) enough. Um, That does require traveling to a more interesting location. Uh, What I meant is trying to shoot it in the portrait. Yeah. You'll get a very limited view of what you're trying to represent. Right. So it depends very much on the subject. Yes. So if I'm shooting a mountain range, I'm probably going to shoot it in the landscape or horizontal orientation. Yes. Unless there's something really interesting that I want to focus on and subtract the non-interesting pieces. The other thing that we can do, and, and I noticed this particularly when I was photographing out at Yosemite, you get these amazing landscapes, you know, and you know, there's everybody, literally 5,000 people an hour, making photographs of Half Dome. Mm-hmm. Most of them are doing shooting that horizontally, but the, the power half dome of Half is, Dome uh, is the one place you need to shoot it the other way. You might want to shoot it the other way and, and you know, and get the bridal veil fall and all that sort of thing in your shot. So the only guidance I would suggest to folks is as we're looking at making landscape photographs, don't limit yourself to only shooting the horizontal perspective. It will be the most common, but hey, you already got there. Spend 30 seconds and flip the camera 90 degrees and see if you get something that you like as much or even better. Right. That sort of may go into... the concept of having a particular point of interest that you want to focus on. If you're shooting a landscape when you have not identified an object of interest, then you are just wandering. There's certainly the risk of it being a very boring, unfocused, and I don't mean unsharp, I mean non-specific image. So one of, the th- one of the ways that we can help do that is by, again, looking at the image, by seeing the image before we squeeze the shutter, does it have dimension? And we, our eyes are amazing. We see the sense of depth and such, but as soon as we go to a photograph, it becomes two-dimensional. Sure. So we need to create dimension in the image that we create. And a general guideline, I'll hesitate to use the word rule because someone will want to go do something different, but a general guideline is that a landscape photograph has three stages. 
Okay. We talked about that foreground, midground, and background. Right. And as the photographer, we get to decide which one is the most important because yes. one of them is going to be more important than others. And that's going to help us determine where in the image we're going to focus. And it's going to also help us determine how much or how little depth of field that we want. Both considerations in landscape. The general thing is, oh, oh well, it's a landscape. I better shoot at F-16 and F-22 or, or something like that and get everything in focus. But do you always want to do that? Maybe not. not. Yeah. So if you've got foreground elements, you should have them. Mm -hmm. um, do they all need to be, always need to be sharp? No. No, I agree. You know, you and I have been in places where, you know, we're looking over reeds or cattails into a pond. I don't necessarily need the cattails to be tack sharp, but I do want them in the frame so they create right. a framing right. element um, to direct the viewer. No, I may want them to be sharp, and that's fine. I can make that decision. The same thing is true if we're photographing our hard-to-find-here mountain range. Uh, if that's the story, if it's the, the way the rocks have evolved and been pushed out of the Earth's crust, I just want to create frames for that and that are not distracting the viewer to look elsewhere. Right. So I don't want a lot of noise or noise, I mean clutter, in the foreground or the midground. Right. So what you're saying is the foreground and midground can become part of the frame. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. We could use, as we, we talked about, you know, those cattails in front of that pond as a lower frame. Mm -hmm. We can use tree branches. Right. You know, as an upper frame. Right. We can use trees themselves as left and right edges. Yes. In order to try to keep the viewer in the frame. Sure. Because when we look at landscape photographs, when those things are missing, we can exit the frame. Right. We're not able to keep the attention, you know, on the subject. And we may lose the viewer. You might see something that's really beautiful. You know, I've got a photograph uh, on the wall behind us of... What you what was called the the Caledon Badlands, you right. can't go photograph there anymore, and they're fascinating. But as I look at the photograph, there's nothing holding me in the frame on the, either side. Right. So I would say it's unsuccessful. Okay. There's it's it is a vertical shot because there was a tree that created the upper boundary. Okay. But I did a poor job on creating the side boundaries, the eyes fall out of the frame, and we don't stick there. Right. So it's a learning process, right? We have an opportunity every time to go try do, to do something different. Sure. If I'd step, stepped sideways five paces, I may have found another ridge of rock yep. that could have created a side frame. And as most of us, at least in Western cultures, look left to right, mm -hmm. I would want, if I, if I can only have one boundary, I want it on the right-hand edge. Right. To cause the eye to bounce back into the frame. So sure. composition becomes really, really important in the context of landscape. Now, you pointed out something very important uh, as we were prepping, and that was deciding where to focus. Can you elaborate that on that a little bit? Yes. Um, it's something that I struggle with now. Uh, because lenses 
inherently have the ability to give you only a limited depth of field or a limited area that is actually going to be in focus and after that it's going to fall out right um where you choose to focus your lens gives you more or less depth of field and if you don't get it right something's going to be out of focus which is not going to be pleasing i i concur and you and i as photographers if we have an opportunity we're not going out making landscape photographs you know between 9 a.m and 4 p.m we're going to try to do it early in the day or later in the day right where there is less light right so the whole you know idea of just show up throw on f16 and hope for the best really doesn't make a lot of sense so i think what you're saying is that if my foreground is the telling thing i'm going to want to focus on the foreground right and if my midground is well focus there and but what if my background and everything in front of it is important do i focus on that mountain range you could you can, but you're going to lose the front. Ah, so how do I get them all? Ah, well, that's the question. Uh, the one that's talked about most frequently is the usage of something called the hyperfocal distance. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> which is a point at which if you focus you will get a certain amount in front usually about one third of the distance in front of that will be in focus and two thirds will be behind it although if you're in the hyperfocal you should get pretty much everything to infinity in focus beyond that yeah when i when i was coming up as a film photographer every lens had a hyperfocal distance scale. And we could actually make photographs without ever looking through the lens. Uh, because sometimes focusing with ground glass was difficult. The hyperfocal distance was brilliant. Oh, I'm going to shoot at F8. I've got two markings on the lens. I'm going to put infinity on one. Right. And that tells me how close I'm going to be able to get at F8 or F16 or whatever aperture I'm using. Um, and it's going to work, work out brilliantly. Um, the idea, of course, that in general, at distance, depth of field is one-third in front of the focus point and two-thirds behind it. Right. That changes as we focus closer. Yes. So it gets much closer to 50-50. Right. When we get very close to the subject or focusing very close to, on a very close subject. But in general, one-third, two-thirds is not a bad guideline. Goodness forbid, say rule. <laughs> Uh, a bad guideline to go by. So if you're photographing that meadow in front of the, you know, you know the Grand Tetons, maybe you don't want to focus on the Tetons. Yep. Maybe you want to focus a third in or two thirds in, depending upon where you want your depth of field to be. Now, most lenses today don't have depth of field scales or hyperfocal distance scales. Correct. And that's where I struggle. So I have an idea. You have a smartphone? I do. So do I. So does pretty much everybody. Yep. So there is an app 
that I recommend called photo pills. Yes. And one of the things, the multitudinous functions that photo pills offers is hyperfocal distance tables. Right. So you can say, well, I'm focusing on this thing and it's 100 feet away and I'm at F6. You just open photo pills and it will tell you exactly for your camera, your lens, your sensor, where focus starts, depth of field starts, and depth of field ends. Yep. It's a marvelous tool. Um, now, I do know that on many cameras, we can stop down the lens when we're looking through the viewfinder or the electronic viewfinder um, called depth of field preview. Yes. What's the big challenge with depth of field preview sometimes? Uh, actually determining what's in focus and what isn't in whatever means you're looking at it. Yeah, it's a really small image. Right. And it's very hard to tell looking at the screen. And if it's a classical DSLR, it also means the image is going to get freaking dark when you look at it through the viewfinder. Yep. Because we're looking through the viewfinder with the lens wide open. Yep. And the lens only stops down at the time of photograph. Right. So there can depth of field preview sounds like a wonderful thing, but it can be a bit of a challenge in some shooting situations, whereas a hyperfocal distance scale really going to help you a lot. Except for the proviso that I that I struggle with is I look at the table and it tells me if you're focusing at this distance, you will this is your hyper this is you. It'll tell you what your hyperfocal distance is, which I'm assuming they mean if you focus at this point, this is what you're going to get. Mm -hmm. In a landscape, if they're saying focus at 500 feet or whatever, I don't know where 500 feet is. Oh, that's a very good point. And this, is be, this used to be really difficult when these manufacturers removed depth of field and hyperfocal distance scales from their lenses. Right. May they all rot in hell. <laughs> uh, we call those people asshats. But I have a cheap solution. Okay. Um, do you play golf? No. No. Thank goodness. No, and I don't play golf <laughs> either, and I know people who do, and I hope you, you heal soon. But there is this awesome thing for golfers called a rangefinder. Okay. Um, laser rangefinders used to be really expensive. And as a former precision rifle shooter, knowing the range to where your target was is really important because you have right. to calculate ballistics and wind and all this sort of thing. And I can remember paying a lot of money for a laser rangefinder. Well, I've seen them as low as 50 bucks. Okay. You bring it to your eye, you point it at different things, and it will range it. And for me, I need some help determining subject distance from time to time. Right. I can't just look at it and go, oh, yeah, that's 328 feet. I got a rough idea. But as I build tenure... On the planet, my ability to guess these distances is diminishing. Right. So a simple rangefinder is a is a, an outlet for that. Okay. So we're just saying that a, that just an ordinary golf uh, 
rangefinder is probably good enough. A golf rangefinder is probably good enough. You don't. No, I realize that, or I think I realize because I have no expertise in it. But I don't know that you know you're going to have a golf hole that's going to be 600 meters away or no. or something not that, like not that. Not you want to measure or anything. Um, as a former shooter, yeah, well, you would want to measure that. You would want to range out to you know 2,000 meters potentially. Not me. I couldn't do that. <laughs> um, but there are guys who can. Um, but these rangefinders are actually pretty amazing in terms of their ability to reach a long distance. Right. And again, I may not need to know how far away the Grand Tetons are, but I probably want to know how far away the farmhouse in the mid-range is. Right. And that will help us enormously as we use these hyperfocal tools. Okay. Because I did look for a rangefinder, and the ones that I found, I, I, I did find the golf ones. Um, but the ones that I got for rifle shooting or bow, bow and arrow shooting, mm-hmm. uh, I said, okay, there's, I can get a whole lens for that much, so forget this one. Yeah. Uh, so for bow and arrow, your your target range is limited because of the ballistics of an arrow. Right. But a precision rifle rangefinder is going to be fairly expensive. Sure. Uh, but you may not need that 2,000-meter uh, type of thing. So I'm just okay. So I'm lo- I, I just literally while we're recording this, I'm I'm being a bad person. I went on Amazon, and I can get a 1,200 yard range laser rangefinder for 150 bucks. Okay. Um, not a golf one. This one is designed for hunters, so it's camouflage because that's important i'll never find it again (laughs) that's very important when you're uh, (laughs) photographing that uh, your kit is camouflaged because it's not like any critter isn't going to smell you long before (laughs) they see you but anyway yeah so it's not it's not as stupid as it used to be and the thing is to look at the ranging capability you know i see them as, as low as 600 meters 800 yards, I would go as long as I could afford in something that's still compact. I mean, you do not want to carry a precision rifle shooter's laser rangefinder. No, because you need a spotter to carry that because the things are bulky and they're heavy and all that. And plus, we're just photographers. We're just trying to make some nice images. Sure. We don't necessarily... population's already scared of us. We don't need to scare them anymore. What other issues do you run into when you go to make landscape photographs? Um, lighting, finding or achieving the detail in it that I wish. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked previously about the irregular illumination between the sky and the and the ground, or the foreground and background, and how finding an object of interest to hold the attention up front. That kind of thing. Yeah, so it's, it, it's, it's more than just a snapshot. It, it, takes, it takes planning, it takes a little bit of research, some preparation, and finding something that's interesting to photograph. Yes. Uh, it's funny, you know, uh, I noticed, not that 
many of us have been doing much traveling for the last little bit, I could always find interesting landscapes in a place I'd never been. Right. And yet, close to home, I would say from time to time, you know, there's nothing interesting here to photograph. Yet if somebody came to our town as a visitor, they'll find all kinds of interesting things Mm -hmm. to photograph. And so sometimes we need to act like a tourist. Right. Pretend we don't know everything. And maybe see, because tourists see differently. You know, I, I know when I was outside of Lone Pine in California, um, in the what they call the Alabama Highlands, you know, the guy at the hotel said, it's just a pile of rocks, man. It's just <laughs> a pile of rocks. I don't know why you guys are getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning to photograph rocks. <laughs> and from his perspective, he's bang on right. Yep. But for, but for us, you know, with my partners coming from Scotland and me coming from Canada, it was like nothing we'd ever seen before. And we found all manner of different interesting perspectives that we could use to make landscapes that, in many cases, worked out really, really cool. Right. So maybe that's something else that we as photographers can do, is learn to see like a tourist. Yep. No question. So, one of the things that we want to talk about, you know, as we wind down this episode, as we go forward into the future, Gordon and I want to touch on the value of smartphone photography. And one of the things that I would encourage people to do, because you always have your smartphone with you, is if you're driving along and you see something that looks vaguely interesting... Take a shot on your camera phone of it. Why? Because it's a reminder and because it's got a GPS coordinate so you can get back to it with your, let's call it your better camera. (laughs) Uh, For lack of better terminology, it's really, really useful in that regard. And I don't claim to be uh, a big user of smartphone cameras, although I want to improve that. But that is one thing I find super useful. I haven't thought of that. It's got the GPS built in, right? right? And it makes it very, very easy to get back to it. And we can use tools like Lightroom, as an example. When we import those photographs into Lightroom, remember Lightroom's got a mapping feature. Right. And it'll put a pin in the map yep. to tell you where you were when you made the photograph. Right. I don't know that a lot of folks do that with their higher-end cameras, you know, put in locations, but you can get, some cameras have GPS built in or they'll have a Mm -hmm. GPS card you can add. Uh, I know a couple of photographers, they live and die by that, landscape and wildlife photographers. Right. You know, where do I need to go to get back to where those mountain goats were? Mm -hmm. Um, So it's just another tool that we could use. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Well, guys, I want to thank you all, as always, for listening. We hope that you found our episode, whatever number it is, (laughs) we'll figure it out, uh, interesting uh, this time. Gordon, anything you want to say in closing? No, uh, there are other things that can also go into this whole landscape thing, but maybe it requires uh, a different form of discussion. 
So okay. maybe at another date, another time, another place. We might do another episode. We might do another episode. Yeah. Yeah, uh, we're trying, and the reason we say that, guys, is we're trying to keep the episodes around no more than 45 minutes so right. you don't fall asleep at the wheel and uh, and hurt yourself badly. So, for Make Better Photos and Videos podcast, I'm Ross. And I'm Gordon. And thanks so much for joining us.